The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the first four episodes, we asked, answered, and discussed 14 questions. In this episode, we conclude what we began in part four, a studied look at the whole counsel of God's Word, the Bible, in context, wherein God reveals His definitions, parameters, and the spiritual significance of the creation ordinance of biblical marriage. In this final episode, it is worth repeating that there are many ways to look at the issue of marriage, as well as the topic of sexual intimacy. As stated, if we examine things under the umbrella of man as the ultimate authority for determining things, then we can look at the subject and come up with whatever we like as a result, because... In the end, the result is always contingent on a floating island of human consensus, opinion, percentage, culture, 
and a myriad of other influences. When all is said, no one is right, no one is wrong. It is simply the majority who rules the day. On the other hand, if God and His Word are the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, justice, and beauty, then by definition we should be accepting, respecting, and submitting to that authority and not our own. We may not like it, it may even be painful at times, but either God is sovereign or we imagine that we are. Thus, as a faithful Berean Bible student, it behooves us to look at God's Word and be prepared to listen and observe God's will on the matter. So, continuing in this episode, as we look at the Bible, we find a fairly clear statement found in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which says the following, quote, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination, unquote. Although this verse is self-explanatory, there are a surprising amount of people who believe that this verse is no different from verses which, for example, prohibit eating pork or wearing certain garments. Many would attempt to point out that since we in the church no longer hold to such strict Old Testament prohibitions, that this demonstrates how God's Word is cultural, in flux according to the environment of the day. Consequently, neither should we view same-sex relationships as anything other than one of many things that a bunch of old men who were stuck up about several thousand years ago. Some will suggest that in the New Testament, Jesus does away with the law. Therefore, all law, including Leviticus 18 verse 22, is no longer applicable to the Christian. However, as it turns out, this idea is highly disingenuous and false. What in fact the New Testament and Jesus teach is that those who are truly in Christ are no longer under the law, but under grace, because Jesus fulfilled all of the law. The crux of the matter is how any man is justified and righteous before God according to God. As it turns out, the final answer according to the New Testament is that we can only be justified as righteous by faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his righteousness which is imputed to us freely. We can never be justified by works of the law because we have all sinned and that is our nature. However, having God's nature implanted in us via the new birth by faith in Christ, that nature will have the power to conform us progressively into the image of his Son, and we will have the desire to do his will, which will include some aspects of the law. The question is, 
which aspects of the law and why. This brings us to the reality that Scripture demonstrates that there is a threefold division of the Levitical law throughout the Bible. The Levitical law may be subdivided into three categories. One, ceremonial law. Two, judicial or civil law. And three, moral law. Now, ceremonial laws were those various laws, ordinance, and regulations given by God to Israel in order to separate them primarily from the surrounding Gentile nations. Some of these laws included sacrificial rituals, circumcision, dietary habits, wardrobe, and hygiene. Many of these ceremonial laws served as types in the sanctuary system which ultimately cast shadows and pointed to the substance of our future redemption through Jesus Christ. As such, most, if not all, were intended to be temporary as a schoolmaster unto the Messiah Jesus who fulfilled those substances. Second, we have the judicial or civil laws pertain to those laws which are culturally specific to ancient Israel. Laws falling into this category included penalties for various crimes, establishment of guilt or innocence, rules for business transactions, and guidelines for the treatment of servants and slaves. These laws were temporary by nature and cultural because they were all a necessity as a reaction to the state of man as the result of the fall and dealing with his various uh, dealings with his fellow man under the sway of man's sinful nature. Finally, we have the moral law. The moral law reveals those aspects of God's nature and his relationship to man. And they flow from God as the source of all authority, meaning, morals, and beauty. Moral law reveals our relationship to God and to our fellow man. Moral law describes God's commandments and his will for those who would be called out to be his people and are binding throughout time regardless of cultural contingencies. They don't change because God doesn't change. The fact that there is such a division of law is nowhere more evident than the fact that there is so much confusion over issues such as grace versus legalism, circumcision versus uncircumcision, eating meat versus abstaining, strict Sabbath observance versus resting in Christ and his works. However, once we understand God's purpose and role of his law and its various divisions, as well as being a schoolmaster designed to bring us to grace by faith in Christ, the confusion is cleared up. Thus, when we take another look at the entirety of Leviticus chapter 18, we see that the whole chapter is devoted to various aspects of sexual immorality which violate God's moral law initiated when God created the ordinance of marriage in Genesis. 
In essence, something cannot be immoral unless we have first established what is moral, correct, natural, and blessed by God who has the authority to do so. The fact that there are other chapters in Leviticus which deal with ceremonial or judicial-slash-civil laws which are intended to be cultural and thus temporary in nature has nothing to do with the reality that Leviticus chapter 18 deals with same-sex relationships and other aspects of sexual immorality which are moral issues and are consequently immutable given that is as a reflection of God's perfect will and nature. Next, we move to Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, Paul states that the, quote, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, unquote. In verse 21, Paul goes on to say that because unrighteous people do not glorify God, they become vain and unthankful. Whereupon, finally, in verse 26, Paul says, quote, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet." Unfortunately, the above verse could not be more blunt. What Paul is saying is that whenever or wherever we find people who have rebelliously committed themselves to lusting and having sexual relationships with people of the same sex, the axiomatic reality, according to God, is that it is because God has given them up to those affections due to their refusal to submit to his will. However, to be fair and candid, this dynamic is not limited to rebellion against God's creation ordinance of marriage. According to Romans chapter 2, this pitfall remains potentially open to anyone who is ready, willing, and able to persist in rebellion against God for whatever reason, for whatever sin. The simple fact is that there is a difference between sin as an event and sin as a conditional behavior characterized by rebellion. Sin as an event, past, present, or future can be forgiven, provided that there is the desire given by grace for men to do so. When sin remains a habitual behavior and a condition characterized by rebellion, forgiveness cannot take place until that rebellion gives way to repentance and change by the grace of God.
Next, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul explains to his student Timothy that the law was not created for the righteous, but for those who are in rebellion through various sins to convict them. The full text reads as follows, quote, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine." Unquote. Now, the key word translated, quote, them that defile themselves with mankind, unquote, is arsiknotes. This Greek word is a compound word made up of the Greek word aren, which literally means, quote, a male, unquote, and kote, which means, quote, sexual intercourse, unquote. Strong's Concordance defines the compound word as, quote, one who lies with a male as with a female, i.e. a sodomite or homosexual, unquote. The fact that arsikonotes was and is correctly defined as above lies in the fact that this is the same word used by the Septuagint to interpret Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, already discussed. Next, in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the entire chapter to the topic of the proper attitude of marriage as well as the benefits versus the complications of being single versus being married. In all of the 40 verses within chapter 7, the choice is either to be single or for a man to be married to a woman. The topic arose since Apparently, the Corinthians were asking Paul whether it is considered preferable to remain single and celibate or marry to solve some people's stronger sex drive. In the case of those in this category, Paul counsels those who are unable to abstain to marry since, in his words, quote, it is better to marry than to burn, unquote as in burn with sexual desire. One would expect that if God, Paul, or the church believed that same-sex relationships were permissible or blessed by God, that Paul would have listed that option as an alternative. But Paul does not list this as an option because it violates God's creation ordinance of marriage. Instead, Paul has the insensitivity and arrogance to say in verse 2, quote, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband, unquote. 
Next, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which state the following, quote, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetors, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God." Unquote. Note, the key factor to understand is that according to this verse, there are certain people who are damaging their eternal destiny due to their rebellion against God by constantly and unabashedly submitting themselves routinely to the flesh and the sin of the world. It is as a result of the hard-hearted rebellion on their part and their inability to repent that God states, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These behaviors consist of many things, among which are the effeminate, and those who are abusers of themselves with mankind. The phrase, quote, abusers of themselves with mankind, unquote, is once again the same word, arsikonotes, previously discussed earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The word translated, quote, effeminate, is malakos, the word malakos can refer to three things. One, a boy kept for sexual relations with a man. Two, a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness. And three, a male prostitute. In all three cases, each would prohibit the willing participant from inheriting the kingdom of God because in each case the participant is willingly and habitually rebelling against God's creation ordinance of marriage between a man and a woman. Lastly, despite the fact that the Bible is clear that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, there are those who forget that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, and thus he is eternally existent. These people create the false doctrine and heresy and attempt to fragment Jesus as solely being the God of love, and somehow he is now separate from the Old Testament and from the God of wrath, i.e. Jehovah. Yet, the final word, the closing act to end all debate is by Jesus himself. Jesus' comment provides contradiction to the notion recently floated afresh by someone of note that Jesus would approve of same-sex marriage. The comment is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. Quote, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, 
For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh." And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh, unquote. Now, the first primary and final thing to be decided is this. Either Jesus is God in the flesh, or Jesus is just a really wise man and nothing more. If Jesus is just a man and nothing more, then there is really no practical reason to appeal to Jesus as approving or disapproving anything since his opinion is no better or worse than any other human who lived now or 2,000 years ago. On the other hand, if Jesus is fully God and fully man, then we must attribute all of God's wisdom and knowledge concerning the topic of marriage, particularly since, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, quote, For by him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, unquote. This means that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is responsible for the creation ordinance of marriage between a man and a woman, it also means that since Jesus knows the future, he would know about the issue of same-sex relations now and then. If he thought that the concept was such a good idea, he likely would, if should, have not created it as such to begin with, as we discussed earlier. If he had changed his mind or had been misunderstood, then what better opportunity than that of Mark chapter 10 to set the record straight and to be the all-inclusive, all-loving, all-tolerant Jesus that some make him out to be? Instead, Jesus completely misses the boat and repeats what he himself had spoken some 4,000 years prior. Namely, marriage is a creation ordinance initiated, maintained, and blessed solely between a man and a woman. Having said all of this, the $25,000 question often posed is this. Can practicing homosexuals or lesbians go to heaven? This question, which comes from many different camps, often is framed in many different forms. 
But in order to understand where we stand with regard to what is really being asked and how it is to be biblically answered, it is critical to ask and then parse the question precisely. This being said, let us put aside any tendency to insert our opinion and seek the counsel of God's word which holds immutable ultimate authority over our eternal destinies. Oftentimes, those who ask these types of questions will inadvertently or otherwise make a fundamental mistake in correctly understanding the mechanics of salvation in Christ. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus the Christ, or if in fact you don't believe that the Bible holds ultimate authority over the issues of heaven or hell, then stop now because you regrettably have a bigger problem and no argument in this series or any other series is going to profit you until God gives you the grace to come to terms with it. On the other hand, if we accept God's word as reality, then John chapter 14 verse 6 says, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unquote. Or again in John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus declares, quote, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Unquote. Having said this, the theological mistake often being made is simply this. Those actively involved in ongoing sin will often say something like this. I have accepted Jesus as my Savior. Based upon that, I know he has washed my sins away. So I can go to heaven as the above verse promises. Now, to see if this premise is theologically correct, we need to do an analysis of what is being said. The first step is to simply ask what, according to the Bible, is involved in coming to, accepting, and establishing Jesus as one Savior and having Him forgive us of our sins. Answer, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9 and 10 go a long way in answering this question. Verse 8 states, quote, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Unquote. Verse 9 says, quote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, unquote. Verse 10 says, quote, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, unquote. So verses 8 and 10 agree with the premise of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, reminding us that, quote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unquote. Thus, as was pointed out in episode 3 of Questions About Christianity, 
In order to become forgiven of our sins, we must first be drawn by God's grace to fully and sincerely realize, be convicted, and be willing to repent of our sins. If, on the other hand, we deny or rationalize our sins, we deceive ourselves. We make Christ a liar, and neither the truth nor his word are in us. Now, if we pause at this point and look at the statement made, we must ask a pivotal question. If, as you say, I have accepted Jesus as my Savior, based upon that, I know he has washed away my sins so I can go to heaven as the above verses promise, then just exactly what sins has he washed away? We know we can't say none because scripture makes it clear that anyone who says that they have none is a liar. Secondly, by the admission of your own statement, Jesus has washed away your sins. So you must have some sins to wash away. So the blunt question is, did Jesus wash away the sin of homosexuality or lesbianism? We can ultimately only answer this question in three ways. One, yes, Jesus' sacrifice did wash away the sin of homosexuality and lesbianism. Okay, if he did, then A, that means it was a sin which placed him on the cross to begin with. So, why would anyone who is supposedly a spirit-filled, redeemed Christian who has put away sin, who loves Jesus, then return to any activity which contributed to his sacrifice? Are we not to seek transformation and sanctification by his power and grace? Two, no, Jesus' sacrifice did not wash away the sin of homosexuality and or lesbianism. Okay, then what you are saying is that Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice was incomplete, insufficient, and fell short in this area. Essentially, we must now say that Jesus who is God, is not omnipotent, and thus may not be fully capable of delivering us from all sin. The result is that our salvation is in serious doubt, and God may not be God at all. 3. Homosexuality and or lesbianism are one of many things which never were a sin to begin with. God is comfortable with this and perhaps other things, and it is up to every person in every generation to decide for themselves what those things are. Thus, when Jesus sacrificed himself, it is mainly up to each person in each generation, 
rather than God and his word to decide what things are sin which Jesus died for. Here, obviously, the crux of the issue forces us to face the reality that either we are looking at homosexuality and or lesbianism as a sin, or we deny that it is a sin. Based upon the totality of Scripture in proper context, God's Word makes it clear, as pointed out throughout this episode, that anything outside the boundaries of God's creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman is a sin. Sexual union is a part of that ordained union, among other things, which makes a husband and a wife one body in spirit. If you want to deny this or to redefine that, fine. Just understand that if this ordinance does not represent God's ultimate authority on the matter, then there is no ultimate authority on the matter. Consequently, by the same logic, we can also say that sex between humans and animals is not a sin, despite the Bible saying otherwise. We can allow for any number of men and women to engage in sex and marriage at the same time, and it is good. We can allow for polygamy in any numbers, and it is good. We can allow for sex between adults and minors just as soon as society comes to a consensus that it is permissible. You see, there are no limits once we remove God's ultimate authority. Anything and everything is possible as long as ultimately it is good in our own eyes. Now, on the other hand, if homosexuality and or lesbianism is a sin, then yes, God can and does forgive that sin, just like any other sin, provided God draws us to a sincere recognition, confession, and repentance of that sin. The issue is that since homosexuality and or lesbianism is sin which requires confession and repentance, then by what rationale do we justify willfully and habitually continuing in something that we know to be sin? Well, the reality is that to do so would constitute rebellion. Moreover, it demonstrates insincerity at the outset. Herein lies the frequent breakdown within the theological thought process of the question posed. In order to demonstrate the breakdown, let us pose a hypothetical situation. Let's say that I am a serial thief. Every day I go out and I consciously plan to enter whatever store, fill my pockets with merchandise, and walk out without paying. Then, by whatever means, I come to the realization that theft is wrong. It's a sin. I come to Jesus and confess that I am a sinner and ask him to forgive me. 
Let's say further that having done so, I feel warm and fuzzy all over and go to church from now on. Subsequently, the next day and every day thereafter, I continue to enter whatever store, fill my pockets with merchandise, and walk out without paying. Afterwards, someone notices that I am stealing and confronts me with that sin and reminds me that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, thieves will not enter heaven. Nevertheless, I respond by telling them that I confess my sins, accepted Jesus, and my sins are forgiven. What this hypothetical demonstrates is the lack of being drawn by God to earnestly repent. Repentance simply means to turn from something to something. In this case, we would expect that at some point, if God is involved in the process, that this thief would be drawn sincerely and honestly in their recognition that theft is a sin and that sin, any sin, is displeasing to God. Then they will have the desire, as well as God's promise of a new nature, which provides transforming power to stop sinning, i.e. stop stealing the proof and the fruit which demonstrates that a sinner has met Jesus, established a relationship with him through faith, has been justified, has become a new creation, and is being truly conformed to the image of God, is that that person now increasingly sees any sin as an aversion to God. Thus, continued ongoing willful habitual stealing would tend to demonstrate that conversion confirmation transformation and sanctification have never begun to begin with because we were not drawn genuinely and sincerely to making jesus lord of our life the point is that Jesus does more than forgive sins. He provides transformational power through his resurrection to change our lives. If there is no change, then we have to question ourselves, not Jesus. This is precisely the issue with any sin, including homosexuality and or lesbianism. One cannot say, I was a sinner, I realized and recognized my sin, confessed my sin, and received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and then never see, realize, much less attempt or change or repent of the sin or sins which existed. In point of fact, to the degree that we resist, refuse, fight, excuse, rationalize, redefine, or otherwise willfully, routinely practice sin in our lives, demonstrates rebellion, not repentance. Paul makes this very argument in Romans chapter 6. This chapter completely and masterfully destroys any pretense that a true believer in Jesus may somehow be saved and willfully, rebelliously continue in sin under the guise that whatever or however many sins they continue to practice are 
forgiven. I encourage you to read the entire chapter, but here is a highlight in verses 1 through 3. Quote, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, unquote. Consequently, the summary to the question, can practicing homosexuals or lesbians go to heaven? The answer is that no one who is in rebellion to God by virtue of whatever sin or sins is truly born from above. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. In order to be born again, or born from above, we must be drawn by God. Those whom God calls to himself will, by his grace, recognize, confess, and repent, i.e. turn away from, any and all sins, including homosexuality and lesbianism. By faith, God will impute Christ's righteousness to us. He will bury the old nature, sin, and the flesh with all of its power in the grave with Christ. He will raise us up with Christ and give us a new nature via his indwelling Holy Spirit and life-changing transformational power which brings about the fruit of good works to his glory forevermore. You see, Jesus is love, correct? Christ Jesus came then and now to fallen, rebellious mankind involved in all manner of sin where they are. However, for those whom God truly draws and calls to himself, he calls them to follow me. Nowhere does Jesus leave the sinner where they are continuing to rebel and sin willfully against God. Instead, in every case, for the true child of God who has their heart and mind transformed, they become a new creature and they no more serve the old nature. So it doesn't matter what the sin is, whether stealing, fornication, lying, carnality, or same-sex relations. If we've truly met Jesus Christ, then we have the knowledge and assurance that whatever sin we have in our old nature, it has been buried with Christ, and we are risen to serve his nature implanted in us. In conclusion, you may ask, why did we or why should we spend so much time on this subject? The answer is because Ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been involved in cosmic war with Satan. Earth is the chessboard. The eternal soul of every man, woman, and child are the stakes. 
Satan will go to any length and will tell any lie to distract, confuse, mislead anyone and everyone he can. His goal is to draw as many as he can away from restoration and fellowship with God. From the beginning, Satan has used the trick of counterfeiting and twisting God's creation and its various attributes to suit his purpose. Faith versus works, grace versus law, and trust versus doubt, just to name a few. God's authority, his definitions, his sovereign will have all been and continue to be under attack. In any war, there is always propaganda from the enemy. Why do we imagine that it would be unusual that the very definition and parameters of the creation ordinance of marriage would be any different? Yet, truth, reality, and ultimate authority remain constant and immutable like their author, God. In this war, God has called his chosen and conscripted them according to Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Quote, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Unquote. That being said, our mission is to speak the truth in love to the end that those who are in rebellion might by God's grace repent and be saved and that those who have been saved might be edified and grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. If nothing else, it is better to speak the truth in love and be ignored, ridiculed, persecuted and if necessary martyred than to remain silent and to be judged in agreement with those who are in rebellion against God by virtue of our silence. Father, I pray that by the power of your holy name, by your grace and by your mercy, that you would withstand the power of Satan, the flesh and the world. I pray that as your word and your spirit go out, that there would be those by your grace who might receive your word in their heart. I pray that we all would be drawn to conviction and repentance of any rebellion or sin that is contrary to your perfect will. I pray that we would be delivered from anything and everything which stands as a barrier to redemption and fellowship with you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, amen. Now, if you have any questions about the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.